And Jesus' word to us today, if we understand it correctly, I think should have two extreme responses in all of us. The first response is that it should cause a chill to run down our spine. When we hear this story and see the seriousness of our situation, all of us should be like, ooh, (laughs) is that our future? Yet at the same time, this exact passage causes us to overflow with thankfulness at who Jesus is and what he's done. It's a great passage to think through who we are and who Jesus is. Now, this shouldn't come as a shock to you, but people are not perfect. People are not perfect. We all say things and do things that hurt one another. We, we cause offense in one another, right? Are you with me? Have you felt that from others? Uh, we're going to get interactive today, so hold on to it. We're going to keep asking questions. Jesus says in verse 1 that it would be better to have a ginormous rock tied around your head and be thrown into the ocean than to cause offense in someone. I want you to put your hand up right now if you, like me, have caused offense in someone else. Show of hands, nice and strong. Good work. All right, now, hang on, leave, don't, don't pull them down too quickly. Leave your hand up if you think that in the future you are likely to cause offense to someone. Hand up, just... Re- Jesus, now leave them there. Jesus is saying that everyone with their hand up right now will be better off with a large rock tied around your neck and being thrown into the ocean than to cause offense in someone. And put your hands down. What is going on? What is so important, so big that he would say you're better off just sinking to the depths of the ocean than doing this, than causing offense in someone? I hope you can see that although Jesus was speaking to the disciples, preparing them for what it means to be a follower of him, he's speaking to us as well. This is profoundly relevant to the way we think about who we are, about our future, and Jesus' assessment of us. What could be so bad that it would be better for us to drown at the bottom of the ocean than to cause someone to offend God? Well, Jesus tells us, offending God. Causing someone to offend God is a phenomenally bad thing. Now, when Jesus talks about offense here, he's talking about um, not what we normally think about with offense. You know, when you say, oh, someone offended me. Usually we say, look, they offended me. And the reason they offended me is because they, you know, they thought they said that Holden were better than Ford. How could you think that? You know, it's it's kind of menial things along those lines. Or or you, you give someone an idea and you explain the idea to them and they're like, oh, I think that's a dumb idea. You're like, oh, you're offending me like that. I don't know what, what sorts of things it is that offends you when people do or say things at our dinner table. Um, one of our kids, I won't mention his name because I haven't asked his permission yet, um, but one of our kids has a particular problem with people eating in a noisy way. He can't handle it. If you make any sort of mouth noise, he's like, stop chewing. And you're like, we're eating. Is Jesus saying if you cause offense in anyone, that's it? No, he's not talking about that type of offense. It's the type of offense, the type of offense that he's talking about is the type of offense that you commit against the law when you offend. When you break the speed limit, you've broken the law. That is your offense. But here, what Jesus is talking about is not just the law of the land, but offending against God. Being found guilty of rejecting the life-giving God and choosing what we want to do over what he has said, the way he has set up the world. I mean, ultimately, that's what all criminal offenses are, isn't it? Someone choosing what they think is right rather than submitting to what the ruling authority says is right. 
Do you see that? We, we create our own law. And when I break the law, I'm actually making my own, being a law unto myself. When it comes to God, when we live in a way that we think is right, not the way that he thinks is right, the Bible calls that sin. It's offensive to him. Falling short of God's good order for us. That's how the Bible labels this offense. And the surprising thing is here that Jesus tells the disciples and us to expect that we will continue to offend God. That should scare us. To expect that we will continue to offend God. Offenses will certainly come. That's what he says in 17 verse 1. It should be on the screen. Offenses will certainly come. Here, this word offenses, it literally means to put a bait or temptation in someone's way so that they, they trip up or, or fall down or sin. There will be things in your life and mine that cause you and me to trip up when it comes to offending God. Opportunities are going to come into our view, desires, cravings, requests, temptations, invitations that we will give into. That's to be our expectation. As Jesus here huddles together his disciples, as he, as he helps them work out what life will be like following him, he says, expect these things to happen. Temptations to come. Followers of Jesus will not be perfect. Not until Jesus' return. I once uh, met a guy, his name was Joe. Uh, he came along to a church I was a pastor at. And uh, for Joe, he thought that he was perfect. He recognized that once in his life he, he did reject God, but now he, he didn't sin anymore. He, he didn't cause offense to anyone else or, or offense to God, that he had gotten to that point through God's grace to be perfect. And you had this conversation with him and you're like, wow, he, he, he here is saying that Jesus is wrong. He's saying that he's, he's actually not in need anymore of forgiveness because he's done with sin. And as we chatted more, we worked out that he lived by himself. I'm like, it's probably the only way you can ever think that you don't sin because there's no one around to point out how selfish you are. Um, uh, and, and as we chatted through things, it kind of came up. He had some twisted views of the Bible. If you're looking for the perfect church, you won't find it. It doesn't exist. If you're looking for a community that you never stumble in, you will not find it. The Christian community will always be a flawed community. Sins to be expected. We'll always, this side of Jesus' return, hurt one another. We'll always, this side of Jesus coming back, feel the temptation to place ourselves and our desires at the center of our lives. We will, until Jesus returns, continue to sin. By the way, so too will every other human community. It's not like Christians are alone in this area. That's what it is like to be a fallen human, to be broken. And we are all broken. But what Jesus is about to say about the Christian community should make it far more attractive than any other. But I need to be very clear on this first. The inevitability of my sinfulness doesn't remove my responsibility for it. The inevitability of my sinfulness doesn't remove my responsibility for it. The fact that it's going to happen, that we will fall over, that things will cause us to trip, doesn't mean that we can say, oh, well, it's not my fault. You know, it was inevitable. <laughs> Every time I sin, I choose to put myself above God. I make that choice. The option is open to me. We are responsible for rejecting God. 
the Christian community will always be a flawed community. But it doesn't make it a false community. It doesn't make it a false community. Sin is to be expected. But the bigger point Jesus is making at the start of these verses is that sin is to be avoided. Sin is to be avoided. It's not just the things that we do that Jesus has in view here, but the things that we encourage others to do. Look at verse 1 again, Luke 17, verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Offences will certainly come, but woe to the one they come through. See, we're so often individualistic about the way we think. We, we forget or we don't care about the impact that our actions have on others. We think that we can just care about what we do and that it doesn't affect anyone else around us. That's my rights. I can do what I want. As a child, I kind of look back on kind of the low points, some of the, 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 the traits of my character that I don't necessarily love. And I recognize that I got great enjoyment from encouraging others. I really did enjoy encouraging others as a child, but more often than not, my encouragement was for them to do something stupid. You know, when you kind of want to say to someone, hey, why don't you go and pull the pants down of the teacher in the front of the classroom? Now, I said that once, and the guy did it. (laughs) You stupid guy for doing it. Why would you listen? But why did I say that? What What is going on with me? There's some sense where I was getting enjoyment from him getting into trouble. I was the one that would kind of lead people into stupid things. But when it comes to sin, it's serious. Verse 2, it would be better for that person if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Why is it such a big offense? Because as Jesus explained last week in the passage just before this, hell is real. It is the right and just punishment for those who reject the life-giving God. And those who encourage others or or lead others to reject the life-giving God, we deserve hell too, because that is just as much a sin. So the Christian community is not merely a community of like-minded individuals who say, yeah, we, we all kind of think there's a God and we're all kind of together in that, whose only concern for themselves is them and God. It's a me and God type relationship. The Christian community is a community deeply connected and concerned for one another. Because Jesus is their God, they're part of this family and the way I act and how I act towards others affects others, potentially with an eternal destiny. Now, I'm not responsible for how someone thinks or acts in the end. They're still responsible for what they do. But I am responsible to do all that I can not to lead them into doing stupid things, to doing sin. Sin will come. But Jesus is saying, do not lead your brother or sister into it. It got me thinking, how how do we do that? What are some ways we can lead others into sin? And I came up with five. There's probably a heap more. But number one, straight from the Bible, 1 Corinthians 8, encouraging someone to do something they think is wrong, but you're convinced the Bible says is okay. And sometimes you're like, look, I feel free to smoke. Smoking is not a sin. I just want to say it. The Bible does not condemn smoking as something that is sinful. It's stupid and a waste of money and unhealthy for you and people around you, uh, but it's not sinful to to smoke. Um, Yet, if you go to someone who perhaps has a view that it is sinful, then to kind of smoke and say, you should smoke too, keep doing it, it's fine, but I think this is sinful, nah, it's cool, is actually to cause them to sin. 
Look at 1 Corinthians 8, 12. Now, when you sin like this against the brothers and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to fall, I will never again eat meat so that it won't cause my brother to fall. Do you perhaps encourage someone to do something they think is wrong that you're convinced the Bible says is okay? That is to cause them to sin, to go against their conscience. Another way that we do it, encouraging or enabling gossip. You hear someone's like, oh, did you hear what happened to so-and-so and what they said? At that moment, I should say, is this gossip? Now, part of me goes, well, I'm not gossiping, so I can hear it. <laughs> but in that point, I'm enabling them to do it. I should say, oh, have they given you permission to chat to me about that? Is that something that I need to know? We, we, we so often can encourage or enable gossip when we shouldn't. Number three, um, dressing in a way that's provocative around someone that's not your spouse. The way we dress matters. We can cause people to trip up, to stumble, to, to do things with their eyes that they shouldn't be doing. We need to think through the way that we dress, what we wear. Number four is similar. Uh, turning on your boyfriend or girlfriend or anyone who isn't your spouse or doing something with them you wouldn't do with your sister. Turning on your boyfriend or girlfriend, turning on anyone who isn't your spouse or doing something with them you wouldn't do with your sister. We're causing people to stumble, to sin. Now, while they're responsible for their actions, we need to think through the way that we act towards others. Uh, the fifth one and the last one is a little bit different. Sometimes we live as Christians in the world around us with no noticeable difference from those that are around us. We live such similar lives to the world that the only thing our friends notice is that we go to church on Sundays. And sometimes we don't even do that. Uh, how is that a problem? Well, we're not living out who we are. We're giving the impression to those around us, whether they be Christians or not yet Christians, that really Christianity is just like a hobby, a thing on the side. It doesn't have much difference in the way that I live. We fit in to the culture around us. We minimize our difference. We don't stand out. But You know, that's what the word holy actually means, to be different, to be set apart. We think holy means someone who's good. Someone who's like God in that way. And it kind of does. But that's because God is different. He is so different from us who aren't naturally good. He is so set apart. There is no one else like him. Holiness means difference. To be, to be set apart. And really in holiness, God's character is displayed. That's what you see. And that's why people talk about being godly, being holy and kind of pull them together. Those who follow Jesus are to be holy. We're to be different. We're to be set apart for God from the world around us. And that means that we'll strive to live like Jesus did, to be godly. But don't forget that we are called to be different from the world. Christians, we're just like, sorry, some people think that Christians are kind of like, they're just like every other human being, but a bit better. We're a bit more moral, right? And the world has that view of Christians, the Bible says we are just as sinful as everyone else, just as deserving of death, just as helpless as every other person on the face of the planet. The only difference is we've accepted Jesus' gift of forgiveness. We'll get to that in a minute. The question here is, are you leading people to sin by living a life that looks exactly like your non-Christian neighbors? Does your life say to your family and your friends, Jesus 
makes a difference. We are to be different. We are to be different. Hear the weight of Jesus' words here. It will be better for him or her if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. When we trivialize sin, we trivialize relationships. Our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Jesus says sin is to be expected. Sin is to be avoided. And here sin is to be pointed out. Sin is to be pointed out. Look at verse 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Be on your guard. Jesus isn't saying, oh, you know, it might come at some point. Just chill out, relax, don't think about it, don't look for it, don't watch it. He's saying, be ready, be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, the motivation here in this rebuking is not to be the judge. Sometimes people go around, think they have the gift of rebuke, the gift of, you know, I'm God's rebuking police. And I'll go around and show everyone else the problems in their lives and what they're doing wrong. And that's my gift to God's church and the world, right? No, Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's. But sometimes, well, we don't want to even talk about the speck in others. We don't want to talk about the log in our own. And so we stay quiet. We're tempted to think the way that culture pushes us around that it's unloving to point out others' sin. Is there part of you that thinks that way? That's like, oh, it's not really a loving thing to do to point out where someone has done something wrong to correct others. I've even had people say to me, it is not our place to correct other people. We should not do it. Have you heard that? The problem is that in saying that, they're correcting my view of the world. They're actually doing what they're saying they shouldn't be doing. Now, I take it they're doing that because they love people. (laughs) They've they've got a desire to see people not be rebuked and treated harshly. And so we have the right motive, but the wrong conclusion. Jesus says to look for it, to watch for where people are stumbling, where people are offending God. Now, friends, I'm sure you already know this, but I will do and say and have done and said dumb things. Uh, I will hurt people, not intentionally. I will regularly be tempted. It's it's inevitable to walk away from Jesus as ruler and put myself at the center of the universe. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. Just like you and me. I need you to care about me. And you need me to care about you. We're a community to make sure that we'll keep trusting in this Jesus and keep serving him. So if we don't care about one another, if we just let one another go on like a, a ship, with no anchor, drifting with the tide. We will drift away. and We will not be in Jesus. Because sin is so serious and hell is such a long time, Jesus is saying we must lovingly, carefully, humbly rebuke one another. We must. It's one of the marks of Christianity. We don't want to speak up. We don't want to say anything, but we must. Otherwise, you are not loving one another. Now, you do it carefully. Don't kind of go, oh, you do this thing, you suck. Or I hate it when you do that and you just be strong. Around. But actually go, hey, look, I just, look, I'm worried for you. You're spending a lot of time with that person that you're not married to. How are you going there? You're spending a lot of time at work and, and I see work's getting bigger and bigger. How are you going with making work your idol? How are you going at loving your family? I struggle with that. Can I be praying for you in this? And what do you struggle with? 
you'd ask the question right now, what do the people in my connect group or the people in the row that I'm sitting in in church, what do they struggle with? Could you answer that? We should be able to do that. We should care for one another enough to ask. We should care for one another enough to share. I woke up this morning and looked at my phone. Now, does anyone use the version Bible app here at all? Hand up if you use version. So every person in the world that uses version woke up this morning to this verse. And I think God has something to say to us. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better an open reprimand than concealed love. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Do you think God's trying to tell us something? (laughs) Yes, because he has told us something. (laughs) It's in his word. (laughs) See, once you become a Christian, Jesus says that we are no longer our own. We've handed over the rights of life and privacy and all the things that we have to Jesus, where he sees all. He gets to choose how we live rightly because his way of living is far better. Therefore, we don't have the right to mind our own business anymore. We don't have the right to go, oh, well, that's just for them, for those that are in the church family. We don't have to say, look, this is my life, sod off. Don't you make any comment on my life? Who are you to say that? Jesus says lovingly. Now, you can say, look, the way you said that was really harsh and you really, you just sound like an arrogant tool. (laughs) And you don't want to just get into this throwing kind of rebuke at one another. But our lives are not our own. We are given to one another to stay trusting in Jesus to the end. If you are checking out Christianity today, if you're thinking through who is this Jesus, what is this community like? And please see the way he's setting it up is for a community that deeply cares for one another so much that we say what we see humbly, lovingly, carefully. Now, I want to be frank with us today and myself too. I don't know how we can do that, lovingly warn and rebuke one another if we don't share our lives with one another. I can't see any way that it can actually happen relationally. If you're not in some sort of small group, a connect group, or a group where you you get together with someone else or a couple of other people and pray together and share your struggles and bear one another's struggles, where you're practically and prayerfully and personally sharing together, if you're not in one of those groups or you don't have those sort of relationships, then you're never going to be able to have others speak into your life. We're never going to be able to live the way that God wants us to live. We're never going to be able to be corrected when we need it. And we're likely to be like a boat without an anchor, drifting. Eternity is at stake for you and for me. What are we afraid of? Why don't we do this? I'll tell you what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that people will know I make dumb choices. People will see that I don't put Jesus first, that I get frustrated with our kids, that I say unloving things to my wife, that I consistently break the law in answering my phone while I drive. Why do I keep doing that? People will see that actually I'm a self-centered person, that I really want people to view me highly. And I think that that will happen when I show people that I've got it all together. And so I don't talk about my struggles. I don't share. I don't say that I need help, that I need Jesus. But newsflash, that's us all, isn't it? That's what all of us are like. It's so pathetic. We want to look good, but God sees straight through us. 
We keep pretending like we've got life together. We don't. No one in this room has it together. All of us have, retur- have rebelled against our God. And we still do it. The aim of this life is not to make ourselves look good, but to show how good Jesus looks. That's the aim. And what makes him look good is when useless, broken, sinful, and self-centered people like you and me inherit the universe because of Jesus, not because of our strength or what we did. And we can point to say, look how good I am. Friends, we need to be open with one another. We need to be able to make those comments, to care lovingly, not harshly, lovingly. We need to be open to hearing rebuke. I want to encourage you today that if you aren't in one of those small groups, if you're not in a connect group or if you don't have anyone that you feel like you can meet up one-on-one with, pull out your connect card right now and write down, I'd love to be in a connect group or I'd love to meet up with someone one-on-one and we'll do everything within our power to see that happen with someone that you can click with and share with. Jesus isn't saying we've got to be an open book everywhere to everyone, but he is saying that we need to do it. And I think he's saying we need to do it more than without just with our spouse if you're married. Because it's so easy to kind of hide things or just to kind of, for our spouse not to see all of life. And there's so much invested when your spouse asks you the question, what are you struggling with? That you're like, oh, it's our marriage. If I say this thing right now, it might crush them. And you need someone else. (laughs) You need someone else as well to stand outside and go, where are you struggling? How can I be praying with you? Sin is to be pointed out. But Jesus also says sin is to be forgiven. Look at point uh, verse 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. How easy it is to rebuke and how hard it is to forgive, right? The first bit, I can do that. I can tell you what you've done. But when it comes to forgiving, well, that's much harder. Why is that? Because forgiveness requires that I bear the cost if it's been against me. It requires that someone bears the cost. If I come into your house and I kind of, as the kind of bit clumsy and I walk in and I trip over something and I knock a, a lamp off a table and it smashes on the floor. It might have been the most ugly lamp you ever had and you hate it anyway, but it's still smashed on the floor. I go, oh, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. What I'm asking you to do is bear the cost yourself. If, if I didn't want forgiveness, I'd say, look, how much do I owe you? And I pull out my pocket and, and pay and that way I've, I've paid it. That's not forgiveness. Either way, someone has to pay. Forgiveness is saying, well, I'm able to look at the way you have acted and to forgive you, to bear the cost of that. Do note, he says, if they repent, if they actually recognize, look, I'm sorry for what I've done. And maybe you need to let them know what they've done. So often we we hold these grudges and people have done things in our lives and we're like, oh, I can't believe they do that. I'm never going to speak to them again. Like, what? They've done something that's hurt you, but you're not going to point out that it's hurt you? You actually need to go to them and say, look, you probably didn't mean this, but this really hurt. And if they go, yeah, I meant it. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry, I'll pray for you. Uh, But so often we just don't realize what we've done. We don't realize the way we spoke. So we need to talk to one another. We need to recognize. Joy's prayer this morning was fantastic. said a hearty amen to that. Asking God to help us to approach others and be honest with them and to talk about our failings and to forgive. 
Sometimes we kind of sit there and go, but these people, they just do the dumb things. They keep doing it. They keep hurting me. How many times do I say, I forgive you? Well, Jesus answers that. Look at verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I, I, I repent, you must forgive him. There's a sense here in which we have no right to stand on to say, I demand justice. And we'll see why in a moment. We'll see who it is that has bought forgiveness. But we need to keep offering forgiveness. Does it hurt? Yes. Did it hurt Jesus? Absolutely. We exist as a community to support one another, to work through this with one another. And I know that there's been horrible things done and said. There's lots to work through. But we have a God who has forgiven us and wiped our slate clean. We've been forgiven an eternity of punishment from God that we rightly deserve. Miroslav Volf, uh, I quoted him last week into my Volf quotes at the moment. He says this, Forgiveness flounders so often because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and exclude myself from the community of sinners. It's worth writing down. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans. In other words, I go, that person that did that thing, they're not human. That's horrible. They're not even, I'm not even going to treat them that way. And I exclude myself from the community of sinners. I would never do such a thing. Do you see that in yourself? I see me in that. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and exclude myself from the community of sinners. Now, when the disciples hear this, they say, Lord, <laughs> Increase our faith. You're kind of like, they're like, how do we do this? Now, one thing to note is here, even the disciples have doubts. There's a sense in which we come along to the scriptures and we think, look, what it means to be a Christian is to be 100%. Yep, I never sin and I never doubt. This is all great. We're going to the end. But here, these followers of Jesus, the ones who know him well, sure, they don't have the spirit yet, but they're kind of saying, increase our faith. We're finding this hard to trust you in. (laughs) We're finding this hard to do. This is not easy. And there's a sense in which we can do that at times too. Lord, I, I'm finding this hard. And we go either one way or another. One, we're like, oh, I can't be a Christian if I'm finding it hard. I, I must not be a real Christian. Let me assure you, sin will come. Traps will ensnare us. We will fail at times, but come back to the one who forgives. And we'll see that in a second. But other times we go, oh, it's too hard. And we use that as a way to say, look, you can't expect me to kind of forgive. That's like this great line up here. And maybe Jesus could, but I'm just, I'm just human. So I'm off the hook. And we kind of go, it's, it's too hard. It hurts too much. I wonder here for the disciples, if there's just a little blame shifting going on. That's kind of like, you know, I'd do this if I had enough faith. But that takes a lot of faith, Jesus. And then he gives this illustration of the mulberry tree. And he says, even if you have the smallest amount of faith, it's enough to move a mulberry tree, which had a great root system in somewhere to uproot it and move it. It doesn't matter the amount of faith you have, but who your faith is in. But who your faith is in. Then Jesus kind of tells a parable. You're like, what's he doing now? It seems like an unconnected story. He then tells this parable about a farmer and his slave that we had in the kids' talk. Um, And the whole point is, at the end of the day, this slave who goes out, who does what um, the farmer tells him to do, he comes back. He shouldn't serve himself first. He's he's a slave. He's, He's paid to do that work. 
If he does all the things that the farmer says exactly, he does everything down to the T, he does it perfectly all throughout the day. At the end of the day, he's still only done his duty. He's not like, whoa, yes, I should inherit the farm. No, he's a slave. He's he's working for him. The basis of faith, the basis of forgiveness is not our works. We are not forgiven because of how much faith we possess. We're not forgiven because we've lived a right life. We've done good things. We've been able to do the, the things that God has given us. We've, we've followed the Ten Commandments as best we can. If at the end of our life we had done exactly what God requires of us, we would simply be His servants, not His children. We would simply be His servants, not His children. We don't deserve to inherit His creation The servant doesn't come home to the farmer and say, okay, I've done it all today. I kept the the, the sheep all sorted. I've done it all. I've done the fences. Great. Can I have the keys to the property? It's mine now. We don't deserve to inherit the creation. We've merely done what we ought to have done. Being able to forgive others, having enough faith, being reconciled to God, it doesn't come from anything we have to offer doesn't come from us, doesn't come even from obeying the law. Luke shows us the focus of true faith and the right response to forgiveness by then including a story of what happens next, where we see how we respond to Jesus is the key. How we respond is the key. Jesus, in his actions about what he does next in this story with the ten men, shows our utter helplessness, illustrates the point that he's just made earlier but also shows the great forgiveness that he's offered. Have a look quickly at the story. Uh, Ten men, uh, come in, uh, they're in a village and they've got leprosy. Now, leprosy is this awful disease. They can't get close to anyone. They can't get close to their friends. They can't hug their family because they'll catch this disease and it's, it's deformed hands. It's, it's horrible. And so they can't even get close to Jesus. Here comes this great healer, the one who has been doing so many works throughout the ancient Far East, Near East. And they're crying out to him with loud voices because they can't get close. They want to get close. Jesus, master, they say, have mercy on us. That word there, master, it's kind of like the, the word that you've seen Dead Poet Society, oh, captain, my captain. It's that type of idea. Jesus, the one who rules my life, my master, my controller, my captain, my leader, the one who I will follow, the one who I serve. That's what they're saying. Jesus comes into town and they scream out, you are the one, you are my master. They've got nothing to offer. They can't go up to Jesus and say, you know, I demand you heal me. They're here in desperate need of his help. Jesus comes to them and he doesn't kind of heal them. Like, what's going on here? He just tells them to go to the priests. The lepers at that point, the ten of them, they leave, they run off without being healed but they were healed before they'd ever arrive at the priests. What we see here is a picture of what Jesus brings in, of the undoing of sin's effect. The brokenness, the, the, the um, sickness and sorrow have come into the world because we've rejected God. And here we see these lepers being pulled back together. You can imagine the deformed hand as they're walking to the priest, looking down, and the fingers growing back on. Imagine that kind of picture that is going on here. Jesus is the one that gives life. It's a picture of the brokenness of humanity being restored, of our distance from God being restored. But the key here is not with the nine, but with the one. 
See, the one leper, he was a Samaritan. And Samaritans and Jews, they didn't really get on. They were kind of a different religious sect. They had different ways of worshipping God. They had different places of worshipping God, different temples where they would worship God in. And so you can imagine for Jews and Samaritans, when Jesus says, go and present yourself to the priest, the Samaritan's going to be saying, which priest? Which temple do I go to? My one or the Jews' ones? Where do we, where do we go here? Then suddenly the Samaritan man, the man who's in need of forgiveness, in need of salvation, recognizes that everything he needs is done in the true priest. That Jesus' words are enough. He isn't disobedient. He doesn't kind of stop halfway and be like, I'm not going to go to the priest. He's actually obedient because he returns to the ultimate priest, the ultimate mediator between us and God, to God himself, God the Son in the flesh, the one who would stand before God and declare humanity forgiven, clean before God, who would deal with our sin and call us his children. This Samaritan man recognizes who Jesus is. He returns to the ultimate temple, the place where God meets with his people and he finds God in the flesh. See, it's not how much faith you have, but who your faith is in. Jesus has secured for us forgiveness. And when you realize what he's asking us to do in forgiving others and to trust him, you realize that that's only possible not with our own works, but by coming to him, the one who's forgiven us who has offered us life, who has dealt with our sin. All the obedience in the world will only make you a slave. But because of what Jesus was about to offer in his death and resurrection, him taking on our sin on his shoulders, experiencing the debt that we owed, we're able to be forgiven. And we're able to forgive others because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Our sin has been paid at the cross. Our rebellion against God has been dealt with. And as we recognize our helplessness, that we have nothing, we can't even approach Jesus because of our sin. As we cry out to him in our dependence on him, despite our faltering faith, we suddenly see why this Samaritan was truly thankful. He's not only freed of his illness and distanced from, that distanced him from everyone, but he's offered salvation. Uh, Verse 19, the very last verse, Jesus says to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. What did he do? How did he express that faith? He glorified God. He saw that it wasn't about him, but it was about serving the true and living God, about the forgiveness that Jesus had offered, the the hope that Jesus had offered. And he lived with that reality. It turned his life around. Christianity is a religion of thankfulness. Not of look at what I've done, but look at how great Jesus is. I'm so thankful for what he has done. Our debt is paid. Our future is secured. And it has nothing to do with us. The moment we realize that, the moment we truly realize that, We're free to call our sin what it is. We can say, I'm a sinner. My identity doesn't depend on my performance anymore, but on what Jesus has done. I'm a sinner who is now a child of God because Jesus has offered me his forgiveness. We're free to forgive others 
because we've experienced someone else bearing the greatest cost for us. We look to him and go, well, my hope is secured in him. He has forgiven me. I can offer forgiveness to others. And we're free to serve. We're not trying to attain salvation, trying to be perfect. It doesn't choke us out and bear us down with the weight of being perfect anymore because we're free to serve our king because our sins have been forgiven. We're living in response to it being achieved for us. And we're free to love. Because in Jesus, we've been shown ultimate love. So we don't need the praise of people when we have the death of God the Son in our place. In Jesus, we have everything. And so the right response, the thing that the one did and the nine didn't, is to return to the king and praise him. Christians should be full of thanksgiving and praise for our God. That should shine out to the world around us. Look at what he's done. Look at what we have. I want to ask you to reflect for a moment. What are you thankful for? What is it that you are thankful for? Give you a moment. Maybe write it on your Connect card or maybe write it in your outline. Everyone to sit there and think for a moment. What are you thankful for? I'll give you um, 30 seconds to do that. I'm going to get us to do something a little bit different right now. I want us to pray. And I think it's a a right response at the moment when we've seen what Jesus has done to actually thank our God. And so I'm going to ask us, you, to actually encourage one another by praying from your seats with a loud voice, thanking God for something that you've written down. You should all have something written down at least. Um, Part of what we're called to do is actually speak into one another's lives. So here's an exercise of warming us up to be able to chat to one another about how we're going. Uh, why don't you now join me and join us together in thanking God with a loud voice, just short prayers, nothing elaborately long about what we can thank God for. And if someone's already said it, that's okay. Say it again. God is awesome. So let's spend the next couple of minutes thanking our God. I'll start. Father God, we are so thankful that you haven't left us in the dark, but have given your word to us so that we may know you. Amen.